So this morning, uh, we're dealing with the subject that is going to be all too familiar, unfortunately, for all of us. Um, I've titled this sermon, The Power of Christ in Conflict, and that pretty well sums up my hope for us this morning, uh, what I want us to see this morning. We'll be dealing with the subject of conflict, um, as you probably figured from that title. Um, And my prayer today, I I just want to let you guys know this up front. My prayer today is that the Holy Spirit would help us see how Christ can be at work and is glorified through our conflict with one another. The fact is, conflict is one of the worst things that we can experience. Um, Think about it. Few things can cause more, and this certainly has been true for me, few things can cause more emotional exhaustion, more even physical fatigue, mental distraction, spiritual anguish, few things can cause those things more successfully than intense relational conflict. When you are at odds with someone who you once loved and were close with, maybe it's an estrangement, maybe it's um, actual hostility towards one another, few things can cause more pain than relational conflict. It wreaks havoc on our bodies and souls. We fear it. We certainly don't feel hopeful in it a lot of the time. And because of that, we tend to run from conflict when, it, when we're faced with it. We oftentimes think that the best solution to conflict is no solution at all. We don't deal with it. But, as we'll see in this passage, that isn't what Paul exhorts us to. So I want us to capture his vision for conflict. I want us to see the glory that comes from it just as he does. I want us to see the beauty of reconciliation that is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, As we'll come to see in the sermon today, we have a reconciling God, so we are to be a reconciling people. But with that said, let's look at the text. We're going to be looking at Philippians 4 verses 2 and 3. It's a short passage this morning. But let's look at that now. So follow along as I read it. Paul writes this. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So I want to jump right in to my first point. And as we go, I think you'll see the vision that I was just talking about, that Paul has, um, that will become evident to us as we go. So first, I want to start by pointing out something that is maybe kind of easy to overlook in this passage. Don't gloss over the fact that Paul actually names the people who he is addressing in verses 2 and 3. Earlier uh, in his letter, in Philippians 2, verse 2, Paul says this. If you want to flip to that, you can. Um, He says this, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, this passage is translated differently than our verses um, in chapter 4, specifically verse 2. So, 
you might not recognize this, but Paul is using identical language in the Greek here to talk about both passages. When he says to agree in the Lord in chapter 4, verse 2, this is what he's referring to. He's, he's using the exact same language to talk about it. Um, and this is, this is important to recognize because this means that Paul has already addressed this subject. He has already told the church as a whole to set aside conflict and pursue unity. He's already told them to do this. He didn't have to go further with this subject, but he does. Paul comes back to it, and even more than that, he points out specific people who he wants to see put that into action. He points out specific people who he wants to resolve their conflict. He's calling them out by name. Can we just stop and think about how kind of shocking and jarring that is? That would be equivalent to me calling out people by name in my sermons. What if I started this sermon by saying something along the lines of like, this sermon is about resolving conflict. So John Doe, I hope you're taking really good notes because this is for you. Like think, think how shocking that would be if if I or anyone from this pulpit did that, if we pointed out, this is what we're talking about this morning, and you, in particular, need to know this in front of the entire congregation, what would you think about that? I know one thing for sure. Me doing that would be the opposite of resolving conflict. If that's the aim, that would seem to be accomplishing the opposite of that. But nevertheless, that is exactly what Paul does here. He points out, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. He's calling these women out by name. Friends, this tells us two things. First, it's a testimony to the seriousness with which Paul is treating conflict and his desire to see it end. If you didn't get that from all of his exhortations that we've looked at earlier in the book in all of the preceding sermons, all of the times that he called us towards unity and peace in the gospel with one another, if you didn't see his desire for that then, this should drive that point home for you. Paul sees conflict as a poison that will slowly kill the church if left alone and if not, not dealt with. Paul knew the destructive powers of conflict, so he wanted to stamp it out as much as possible. We don't know what the conflict was between Yodi and Syntyche. The passage doesn't tell us. Paul doesn't name what it is. We don't know if it was a matter of sin. We don't know if it was a doctrinal disagreement. We don't know if it was just a personality or philosophical clashing between these two women. We don't know what the reason for the conflict was. But what matters is not what the conflict was about. What matters here, and what we should see from the fact that he names them, is how desperately Paul wants that conflict, whatever it's rooted in, to end. He wants it to be over with. That should be a challenge to us. Do we take conflict that seriously? Are we that eager to kill it when it's welling up in our own hearts? Are we as sensitive to the dangers of conflict as Paul was? 
But him calling them out tells us something else too. It is a powerful testimony of the love that existed between Paul and the Philippians. Think about it. Paul would not have written our passage this morning if he thought it would make the conflict worse. Again, he's trying to see the conflict end. He wouldn't have said that if he thought it would actually exacerbate and escalate the situation. He knew that Euodia, Syntyche, and the rest of the church trusted him enough to say those hard things to them. He knew that they would know how much he loved them. And we even see that love in the surrounding verses. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 1. David preached on this last week, but just look at this verse. Look at the love that is expressed by Paul in this verse. Therefore, my brothers, and when we see that translated as brothers, read that as brothers and sisters. He's talking to the whole church. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Look at the love that he's expressing there in that language. And that is immediately preceding him directing these statements to Yodi and Syntyche. And then look again with me at verse 3. After he entreats them to agree, after he's begging them to resolve and reconcile their conflict, he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women And here's the thing I want you to notice. Who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Paul is highlighting how dear these women are to him. He has labored side by side with them for the sake of the gospel. He wants the church and them to remember that. He remembers the time that they struggled and wrestled together for the sake of Christ as they ministered to the lost. And when he says there, whose names are in the book of life, he is referring to Yodia and Syntyche. He is saying, I know these women. I know their hearts. I know their love for Christ and their desire to walk with him. Again, even though Paul is calling them out by name, this is not a rebuke. He loves and respects them. And it is because of his love for them that he is begging them to put aside their conflict and express the love that he knows that they have for each other. He cares about them too much to let it continue unaddressed. Redeemer, let's be more like that. Let's be a church that takes conflict seriously and trusts one another so much that we are willing and able to receive hard things said to one another for our good. In fact, let's invite those things. Let's ask one another to speak hard truths into our lives for the sake of us walking better with Jesus Christ and to overcome conflict and get to kill it. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you asked a close friend how you could be a better friend to them? Or when was the last time you asked your spouse how you had hurt him or her recently? And you asked that question specifically so that you could seek reconciliation and forgiveness for that thing. Or... 
maybe even more unlikely, when was the last time you did that with your kids? You ask them, how have I hurt you in some way, and how can, how can I love you better moving forward? I apologize for that. Those questions might lead to really hard conversations, but they will expose the conflict that lies between us that we might not even know is there. And that is what we should aim to do. But of course, that raises a question. Why do we want to expose conflict? Doesn't that just cause tension? Doesn't that cause awkwardness and discomfort? None of us like conflict, so why would we want to expose it? That brings us to my second point. We want to expose conflict because it does the most damage when it's hidden. Conflict is going to do damage whether we want it to or not, but it's even worse when it's hidden. And that is at least in part why I think Paul brought this up himself in these verses. Friends, hidden conflict, I was thinking about it, hidden conflict is like carbon monoxide. Carbon monoxide will kill us without us even knowing it's there. It's odorless, you can't see it, it suffocates you without you even knowing it's present. In the case of conflict, conflict does the same thing. It slowly ruins our relationships with one another, even as we go on acting or maybe even thinking that everything is okay. All the while, our hearts are hardened more and more towards one another, and we slowly cut ourselves off from one another. And again, in, in this case, with Euodia and Syntyche, the, it was obvious that they both knew that there was conflict and tension between them. But sometimes that's not even the case. You might have been hurt by someone and feel conflict with them that they're not even aware of. And so all the while, your heart is being hardened and turned against them, and they don't even know it. That is ruining that relationship. That is building a rift between brothers and sisters in Christ. We've got to fight against that. Exposing the conflict and addressing it, though, stops that process from deepening. It's hard to bring conflict with others into light, though, isn't it? Sometimes it's because we don't want to hurt the other person's feelings. And I, I think that, that, that seems like a very righteous and virtuous and loving thing. We don't want to hurt the other person's feelings, so we don't want to bring the conflict up that exists between us. But the problem is that seems loving, except for the fact that in reality, what it means is that we're just going on increasingly hating that person in our hearts without them knowing about it. That's not love. That isn't building unity and peace and the bond of fellowship in Christ together. That's severing it. That's not love. At other times, we hide our conflict from one another because of the shame and embarrassment of it. We don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to admit to being hurt by or envious of another person. In the case of marital conflict, something I've seen frequently is that people so often don't let others know because they don't think they should need the help or they know that they're doing something wrong and they just don't want others to see and know that. 
This example of Yodia and Syntyche, though, helps address that shame and embarrassment, though. Notice what Paul implies about them here. In verse 2, if you look back at that, Paul's entreating the two of them to agree, obviously. But notice again what else Paul says in verse 3 about them. As we saw earlier, he says that they have labored alongside him and others in the ministry. He even, he even says that their names are written in the book of life, as we already talked about. Now just pause for a moment and consider what kind of person Paul would say those things about. Even more than that, think about what kind of person Paul could trust to not grow defensive when he's calling them out before the entire congregation. What kind of person wouldn't get defensive in that moment? What kind of person would humbly take that to heart and grow from that experience? Friends, these are godly, mature women who Paul is talking to. These would not be women who are prone to conflict. They weren't quick-tempered. They wouldn't be known as gossips or busybodies or complainers in this church. These are godly women who had worked tirelessly with each other and with others, with Paul, for the sake of the gospel. And yet they still found themselves at odds with each other. And my point is this. Yodia and Syntyche remind us that no one will ever get past having conflict. Even more, no one will ever get past needing help from others to deal with it. Look back, back with me again at verse 3. Paul starts the verse saying, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. <clears throat> Paul doesn't name the person who he's talking about there, the true companion who he's talking about. Um, I was looking at different commenta commentaries some of them uh, speculate that he's probably talking about Luke, but we don't know the person who he's talking about. But we know that Paul wants this individual to help Euodia and Syntyche work through their issues. Whatever the disagreement is between them, whatever the conflict is, it's deep enough or serious enough that they need help working through it. Paul doesn't think that they can, they can work through it on their own. And again, these are godly women who we're talking about here. As mature as they were, they needed help. And we, every single one of us, will need help also in working through our conflict with others. None of us will ever get past that. None of us will ever, none of us should ever think that we're too good for experiencing conflict with others. And I think that was in part, again, why Paul included this in the letter. Think about it. Paul sent this letter with Epaphroditus. We know that from chapter 2, towards the end of the chapter. So, and we know that Epaphroditus was a very trustworthy, reliable man. Paul highly esteemed him in this letter. He highly respected him. So why not just have Epaphroditus tell Euodia and Syntyche privately to work through their conflict together and maybe even ask that third person, whoever he's referring to, why not go to that person privately and ask him to help them work through their conflict? Epaphroditus could have handled this situation privately, but Paul didn't handle it that way. He publicly included it 
in his letter. And I think Paul did that intentionally because he wanted the whole church to see these leaders in the church getting and needing help so that others would feel the freedom to do so as well. Don't let pride and shame stop you from seeking help when you need it, when you are at odds with a brother or sister or spouse, friend, whoever. Don't let pride or shame prevent you from seeking reconciliation in that relationship and seeking help to do so. Just this week, I had a friend ask for some help as he thought through what to do in a really tough conflict situation that he had with a friend. He called me up. He wanted to talk and process through that. We met up. And you know what? The fact that he sought help said so much more about his godliness and maturity than the fact that he had that conflict going on in his life. I was incredibly encouraged um, and praised God for this brother who was willing to seek help to work through a difficult situation. That told me so much more about his character than whether or not he could deal with the conflict on his own or whether or not he even had the conflict to begin with. It took humility and love to do that. Asking for help is good. Allowing conflict to fester because of pride is not. And the same is true in marriage. I'm not married. We know that. But I don't need to be to know that the best marriages will always be those in which the husband and wife are both willing, one, to own their own faults, and two, to seek help and accountability to overcome them and to reconcile together. A marriage isn't healthy just because a couple doesn't argue. And on the flip side, a marriage isn't unhealthy just because a couple does. The mark of a healthy marriage is when the couple is open about their conflicts and they aren't afraid to get help to work through them together. That's the mark of a healthy marriage. So again, let's work on reconciling our conflicts with one another. And when necessary, seek help from fellow brothers and sisters to do so. But again, I think that begs the question, why? We still haven't really addressed that question. Why should we put forth that effort? I'm sure some of you are asking yourself that question. Maybe you're in the midst of a really serious conflict yourself. It seems like every conversation ends in an argument with maybe it's a family member. Maybe you and a dear friend who you love are drifting away and you don't know why and you want to fix it, but you don't even know where to start. It can be very overwhelming in the midst of the conflict. We want to give up. We want to just let go of that relationship and say that I'm done with it. I've been there. I'm sure many, if not all of you, have too. It's easy to lose hope that things can be better. Sometimes we try to work on it, but things don't seem to improve, maybe for years. So why keep trying? Why work on reconciliation? Why not just give up and leave? 
it probably hurt less, right? Those questions lead me to my third point. We don't give up because we're called to something greater than easy, comfortable relationships. Let me say that again. We don't give up, and this might sound weird, because we are called to something greater than easy, comfortable relationships. Yes, there is something better than ease and comfort. And we'll see why. This is where we need to focus on that one little phrase that we see there at the end of verse 2 in chapter 4. Agree in the Lord. That's what Paul was calling Euodia and Syntyche to. He doesn't want them to just go their separate ways. He doesn't want one of them to just leave the church, go find another church body to be a part of so that things could just smooth themselves over. No. He doesn't want them to go to their separate ways. That isn't agreement. And he doesn't want them to just ignore or suppress the conflict that does exist. He's, he doesn't want them to simply tolerate one another. He wants them to actually be in agreement, as we see there. He wants unity and peace to exist between these two sisters. He want, and he wants them to do that in the Lord. So what does that mean? For one that means that we rely on the Holy Spirit. This is where we should start thinking about what does it look like to pursue reconciliation in the Lord with someone else. Part of that means that we rely on the Holy Spirit, especially if the conflict is between believers. Friends, no matter how bad things get, we must remember that the Holy Spirit can do far more than any of us can imagine. Paul goes on in Philippians 4 to talk about the peace of God that surpasses understanding. He says that in verse 7. As you pursue reconciliation, trust that the Spirit can and will provide you that peace, not only internally, but also with the other person. If the Holy Spirit can bring the dead to life, just think about this. If the Holy Spirit can bring the dead to life, he can definitely resolve the conflict or feud that you have with someone else. That's easy compared to other things that he does each and every single day. So rely on him. Trust in him. Don't trust in your own diplomatic capabilities or your, your own ability to be patient and understanding. Trust in he will provide you what you need to pursue reconciliation with that person and trust that he will move your hearts towards one another for the sake of Christ and the unity that you, we are called to as brothers and sisters. Also, agreeing in the Lord means more than that, though, too. This is where I think we have to go back to chapter 2, especially since Paul is using the same language that he did in 2 verse 2. So let's look back at that passage. I want us to start, look at chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 2, and we're actually going to read kind of a big chunk. I want us to read through verse 11. So follow along with me as I read that. Philippians 2 verse 2 starts this. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Friends, agreeing in the Lord means pursuing reconciliation in the same way that Jesus reconciled us to God the Father. It means that when we are in conflict, we seek the good of the other person before we seek our own, as we saw there in verses three and four. Biblical reconciliation ends the moment we try to win the argument. Biblical reconciliation ends the moment that we stop thinking about what is best for the other person or people involved. It ends the moment we stop listening and start making assumptions. We usually think of Jesus' death on the cross in terms of what it did for our sin and righteousness. And that is a glorious reality that we have had our sin covered, paid for, that we are ransomed, that we have been justified in Christ. Those are glorious, incredible realities. But don't forget that it was an act of reconciliation as well. John even mentioned this earlier um, in the passage that he talked about during the missional prayer. The gospel is a story of reconciliation. Jesus ended the conflict that we had with the Father when he was crucified. We were the enemies of God. We hated him and didn't even care that that anger towards him was gonna bring us death, eternal death. It was a feud that we had created that was going to end in our destruction, not God's, our destruction. A conflict that we started that we had no intention of ending that was going to lead to our destruction. But Jesus, the holiest man, our example of perfection, God incarnate, he became a servant so that we could be reconciled to the Father. He humbled and emptied himself for us. His self-sacrifice was the greatest display of love possible, and he made a way for us to love again, God and each other. And with that reconciliation comes life. Friends, that is the gospel and it flips our definition of what is good for us. Ease and comfort aren't bad, but there is something better. But before I say more about that, let me say something to anyone here that maybe is a non-Christian today. Maybe you don't believe in God. Maybe you don't believe that Jesus' crucifixion accomplished those things that we just talked about. Maybe you don't think you can trust him. 
Maybe you think that God's love for you is dependent on living a good life. Maybe you don't see that Christ did that for you and accomplished that for you. If that is you, let that be the first conflict that you seek to address today. Before worrying about any relational conflict you have with others, deal with your conflict with God. Romans 8 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice, there's a qualifier there. It's not just there is no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Do you hear that? The law, being obedient to it, cannot save you. But God made a way in Jesus Christ for that. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. See, this is what it means to trust in Christ. Do that today. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Heed that warning. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Friend, if you are not trusting in Christ, if you have not repented of your sins and hoped in him rather than yourself, don't think that you are all right with God. You are against him. You are hostile to him. You cannot please him. But by trusting in Christ, you are reconciled to him and he is pleased with you in what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. So I I beg of you, seek Christ this morning if you haven't done that already. But for those of us who already do rejoice in the gospel of Christ, let's remember what I said before. Though ease and comfort are certainly not bad things, humble self-sacrifice is better. When we choose the hard path of reconciliation, We choose the path of the gospel, and that is so much better than not choosing that. That is why we don't give up even when we are losing hope. Because when we choose to humbly and patiently endure the pain, we are are adorning ourselves with the beauty and excellence of Jesus Christ himself. When we persevere in seeking reconciliation, we are manifesting his gospel and character and we bring life and light to the world. As Paul went on to say in Philippians 2, verses 14 and 15, shortly after the passage that we just looked at, Paul says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So again, we see there, Paul's heart was for unity and peace. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Friends, when you persevere 
in seeking reconciliation with people, when you take the hard path of addressing it and working through it with someone, you are shining as a light in the world. It might not feel that way, but that's true. You are esteeming the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ in that moment. Friends, we've got to look at conflict that way, especially when the conflict is with a fellow believer. Because if, if all we see is the pain and awkwardness and discomfort of it, we'll just become cynical about it. We won't think any good can come from it. We'll want to run away from the conflict rather than resolving it. We'll want to just step away and be done with it. But think about what we're doing in that moment when we choose that path. In that moment, we will miss one of our greatest opportunities to demonstrate the love of Christ to others. We will also miss the chance to see the Holy Spirit doing incredible things in that relationship. Think about Yodia and Syntyche again. Would you want to be them, given what we've seen here already this morning? These are two people who would come to be known by pretty much every Christian for over 2,000 years, not because of some great act that they've done, but because they were in conflict with one another. Think about that. How does that sound? Would you want to be them? Would you want you, your name, to be in Scripture alongside someone else for eternity because you were in disagreement with them? No, I don't think any of us would want that. It would be incredibly humbling for that to be true of any of us. Yet, at the same moment, notice the beauty in this. Because of their conflict and Paul's hope that they could be reconciled to one another, Christians throughout time will be encouraged, challenged, and strengthened to seek gospel reconciliation with one another. God has used their one conflict to end thousands, if not millions, of other ones. And in all of that, Jesus is glorified. That is the work that the Holy Spirit is doing through their conflict and the work that he can do in ours. D.L. Moody once said this, the voice of sin is loud, but the voice of forgiveness is louder. Friends, there's, unless someone has been hurt, unless someone has been offended, there's nothing to forgive. So there's this odd tension of the reality that without conflict, without pain and hurt, forgiveness doesn't exist. It doesn't need to exist. But when conflict does exist, the incredible just the incredible glory and holiness and purity of forgiveness is allowed to shine forth when it wouldn't exist before. And as Moody says, even though the voice of sin is loud, the voice of forgiveness is louder. Let's be that louder voice in the world of sin and darkness. If you are not sure how to do that, just consider a couple of action steps you can take. Every situation is going to be unique, so use discernment when you're applying these things to your own circumstances. But in general, this is a good process to follow. So I just want to give you a couple things 
if you're in a conflict and you're trying to think about, okay, Kyle, how do I do what you're talking about? How can I practically pursue reconciliation and agreement in the Lord with this other person? I just want to touch on a couple things quickly. First, resolve to address that conflict. If you're in conflict with someone, acknowledge it to yourself and recognize the danger and risk of not dealing with it. Jesus said this in his Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it is said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So let's resolve to do that first. Second, pray. Seek the Lord for wisdom and what to do in that relationship. And pray for that other person. As you pray for them, your heart will increase in love towards them. Third, humble yourself. Don't focus on what the other person is doing wrong or doing against you. Humble yourself to reflect on what you, could be, what you are doing to contribute to the conflict yourself. Know that, however, um, know that however they have sinned against you, you would be no better towards them without the grace of God too. Remember that we would all be like the people who are sinning against us if it were not for the grace of God. So humble yourself to those realities. Fourth, seek forgiveness. That's a great way to initiate that conflict resolution. When you recognize sin that you've, that you've contributed to the conflict, Repent and ask forgiveness from your brother and sister. This is oftentimes the best way to begin addressing the issue with them. It doesn't set them up as defensive. It sets them up with you in a place where they are encouraged by your humility and want to engage in that conversation with you a lot of the time. So seek forgiveness. Then fifth, offer grace and mercy. Be quick to listen and understand the other person's point of view. Maybe there's totally valid reasons why they did what they did that you just weren't aware of. Be patient and extend forgiveness when it's sought. Even if they don't acknowledge their own faults, forbear their offense and know that you shine with the light of Christ as you do so. Christ bore your sins so that you could forbear those of others. And sixth, ask for help. If reconciliation can't be achieved with just the two of you working through it, or you're just not sure what steps to take, seek help from a wise and loving brother and sister. Friends, as we do those things, we will be seeking to agree in the Lord, forgiving and reconciling with one another, and showing the world the amazing power of Christ. May even our conflict be used to exalt the name of Jesus. Remember, we have a reconciling God, so we are to be a reconciling people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, may that be so.
Lord, let us every day remember how Jesus Christ has graciously, humbly, lovingly, mercifully, wonderfully reconciled us to you, though we didn't deserve it. God gained, he, God has and had everything. He didn't gain anything from us being reconciled to him. And we had everything to gain and everything to lose by not having it be reconciled. But Christ, you have done that for us. Thank you. Father, thank you for being a God who purposed to reconcile us to himself. And with that joy, with that encouragement, help us to persevere as we be a reconciling people for your sake. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.